Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. We're going to have a great show today. I've got Dr. Donald Moses. He's a psychiatrist. He's based in Vermont. He specializes in the treatment of adolescents and young adults. He's co-author of the book, Raising Independent Self-Confident Kids. He's got years of experience, and we're going to tap into that experience today because I think we all have recognized that since the pandemic, our mental health has been threatened on an even higher level. I mean, I was surprised to know that even in 2019, about 50,000 people in the United States died from opioid-involved overdoses. And then I think about the pandemic in 2020 and what that's done to our mental health. I think that, you know, when I think about opioid overdoses. I mean, it's there's been three waves. The first wave was back in the 90s. Um, and then the second wave came back in 2010. And that's because the overdoses, it started involving heroin as well. And then the third wave in 2013, um, because that brought in the synthetic opioids. And I think that we're just, we're starting a fourth wave. I really do. And I think that's because of what we've been through with the pandemic. The it's not just the incre- increased drug use. Um, we, I think everybody knows that the COVID pandemic made the nation's drug overdose epidemic even worse. But it also has impacted, you know, how people are dealing with that and the number of people that are going to the emergency room. During 2020, the portion of mental health related emergency department visits among adolescents aged 12 to 17 increased 31% compared to 2019. Um, In May 2020, during the COVID pandemic, the visits for suspected suicide attempts began to increase among adolescents. Those, I mean, 12 to 17, especially the girls. Um, During February to March 2021, the suspected suicide attempt emergency room visits were 50.6 higher for those girls from 12 to 17 and compared to 2019. So, you know, we're going through some pretty serious times. And I think that, you know, I'm really happy to have you on the show to help us all understand the cause and the effect of the opioids. You've got a great background and let's tap into that and we can all learn something. Well, I started dealing with heroin addicts back in 1962 in my senior year of medical school uh, when they were admitted to Metropolitan Hospital in New York City for detoxification. And I found something rather unusual at that time, and that was these men, it was a all-male ward, uh, were not dope fiends and some horrible creatures, but when they weren't seeking the drug, they were rather docile, calm intelligent and very sensitive, uh, having a great deal of difficulty in coping with life. And uh, it became apparent to me that heroin was a tranquilizer for them, probably the ultimate tranquilizer. And back then, ironically enough, uh, the terminology the uh, for the heroin uh, use was 
The, the dealer was called Mother. Where they shot up was called the crib. Heroin was called milk. And when they uh, took their, their shot of heroin, they went on the nod. And I said to myself, well, I've had uh, two little children who were fed when they were infants. And when they were very young, uh, they would cry and get very agitated until they were fed. And then they became calm and went on the nod. I said to myself, there's something very infantile about these people who are using heroin. Uh, following that, and uh, several years later, during my psychiatric residency, Southside Hospital in New York, I was, knowing that I was interested in the drug problems, I was uh, one who was assigned all of the drug cases, everything from marijuana to the opiates. And then following that, I was, uh, worked as a psychiatric consultant both to an outpatient drug, uh, adolescent drug program and to an out and inpatient uh, methadone detoxification and methadone maintenance programs at Triborough Hospital in Queens, New York. 1976, I published a book called Are You Driving Your Children to Drink? Uh, discussing the causes and effects of uh, drug abuse and what can be done to treat it. Uh, so... My uh, experience uh, with drug users and heroin users goes way back. Uh, since 1970s, I've had a private practice, and I've worked with many drug users, many opiate users over the time, some of whom, even on an outpatient basis, I was able to help to get over their addiction gradually and with the help of programs. Uh, and many, I say... Had no, I had no effect on the use at all. But I did learn a lot from doing psychodynamic or what we talk call now talk therapy. Uh, basically, I am an old-fashioned Freudian psychiatrist who believes in the unconscious mind and how it influences us. And so I learned that opiates are basically, for all the people I've worked with, are the ultimate tranquilizers. And in times of stress, that ultimate tranquilizer is going to be uh, the most effective way to deal with their stress. In the 1960s, during the Vietnam War, and the 70s after the Vietnam War, many of our uh, soldiers came back addicted to, to heroin. Uh, many of them were able to get clean, many were not. But I worked with a lot of those people at the methadone program at Triborough Hospital. Uh, I think that what we have to realize is that right now, uh, during crisis, uh, probably all through history during crisis, I don't know whether people are familiar with the term Dutch courage. Dutch courage was a gin that was given to the Dutch sailors in the 1600s before they went into battle. Uh, during the 1920s, during 1929, 1930, the suicide rate went way up because of the stress of the Great Depression. Now, in the, in the 21st century uh, and the COVID epidemic, I, I experienced two reasons, basically, why opiates and suicide, successful suicides and suicide attempts and suicide gestures have all been on the rise. 
first reality factor. Many people lost their jobs, and suddenly they find their way of living has been very, very greatly endangered, and they no longer feel that they're safe, and they will turn to, <coughs> excuse me, uh, the opiates or, or to, on rarer occasions to suicide in order to help them emotionally over this critical period. Um, the other reason is that we have found, us of, uh, those of us in the mental health field, and I'm not alone in this, have found that the 21st century is basically a century of uh, indulgence and entitlement, and that the younger generation is not really used to these hardships. Lee, I throw it back to you. Well, I'm in Vermont, which, as you know, is in the East. My practice was in New York on Long Island, which is in the East. What are you finding out there in Texas? Well, you know, I think it's not just the the Northeast or Texas. I think it's a nationwide problem that we have. And I think, you know, you kind of you touched on it in that, you know, the generation that's being raised today is so different because of social media. We get everything immediately. We get that gratification just right away. And so we're more we're looking for that immediate response and you know as well as i do anytime that you know the brain gets confused you when you start using a drug because it feels good okay the brain's thinking i like that you know i like that and a lot of the times this drug use starts with prescription drugs it's not necessarily people looking to use but the brain's like okay i like that and then the, those little neurons and dendrites get this big hit of dopamine and they get all confused and all of a sudden that's like well I, I i want that i want that they get another big hit of dopamine and it gets to the point where it's i need that i've got to have that i mean addiction is a brain disease and i have had many conversations with families about this because and yes there are a lot of bad choices made along the way. I'm not minimizing those at all. But addiction is a brain disease. And I think, you know, and I've looked at some numbers and whether you're in Texas or the Northeast or the Northwest, I mean, it's become a public health crisis. Well, Lee, I disagree with you that it's a brain disease. It's a symptom that becomes a disease. Uh, just like if you have tuberculosis, and you have a cough, it's a symptom. But if that cough causes uh, pulmonary bleeding, it suddenly becomes a disease. And I think that we have to be aware that the use of the opioids is really a symptom of an underlying uh, dependency problem. Uh, the, not everybody who has been addicted to opioids stays addicted to opioids. There are many people who can just be detoxified and never want them again. And then there are those who can never really get off of them, uh, except with a substitute uh, that, like as methadone, uh, where it provides them with a consistent sense of security. But the underlying problem is what I call a passive dependent or addictive personality. People who have difficulty in coping. Uh, with 
situations and are looking for something to hold on to, to give them a sense of comfort, as we said, and security. And the opioids are the ultimate. Uh, marijuana is, is good for some, but for others, it's really very uh, agitating. Um, Valium, Xanax, and the other prescribed tranquilizers are also addictive, and we underplay uh, uh, the addictive quality because they're uh, proscribed so much by, quote, legitimate doctors, unquote. Uh, it's really a massive problem in people dealing with uh, the stresses of everyday life and the stresses of uh, what we're going through in this COVID epidemic. Uh, with the youngsters, I do believe, though I have no proof of this, and I underline it, it's just strictly theory from my experience with teenage drug users, which is vast, uh, that they're having trouble coping with the deprivation of not being able to get together with their friends, not being able to go to school, having to wear a mask, uh, all of the things that have interfered with a young life. They were not raised, as people were in earlier generations, to deal with the, the uh, difficulties that life can throw at them at any particular time. And you have to, we have to recall that in 1929, not everyone who lost his fortune uh, committed suicide. Uh, my grandparents didn't, and they lost the fortune, but they pulled together and they managed without my grandfather killing himself. But I think that we see a underlying uh, uh, emotional disturbed pattern. I was going to use the word neurotic, but I understand that's no longer politically correct. Uh, no, it is a neurosis. Uh, and that is that they, the people really feel that they themselves cannot cope and there's nobody there to count on. Uh, usually that starts pretty young in life uh, when they feel, uh, gee, uh, I'd love to turn to my parents, but they aren't there. So who can I turn to? And the lack of trust in turning to another human being and the consistency of the relief by opioids or any other the other tranquilizers uh, gives them that sense of security that they don't have from other human beings, which is a great tragedy, but it starts very young in life. And that's why the opioids so closely mimic the infantile behavior of hunger to fulfillment. So you say it starts very young in life. Do you mean the, the usage or the need for no, it? The, the potential for it. Okay. The, underlying, okay. the underlying personality problem, uh, character problem, that uh, allows this to happen later on in life. No, I don't know too many six-month-old or one-year-olds that are addicted to opiates unless the mother was addicted to opiates. No, but I'm amazed at how many, you know, 10-year-olds and 12-year-olds that are, and maybe they're not using opioids, but they're using drugs. Oh, yes. Yes, they are. It's amazing how many people, adult people, are using drugs uh, that we accept. Uh, alcohol, uh, cigarettes. We know they're deadly, but they're used anyway. 
because they do have a tranquilizing effect. But that tranquilizing effect doesn't hold a candle to the tranquilizing effect of the opioids. So how much of this do you see? I mean, there's different sources where it comes from. A lot from the little bit of research I've done shows that oftentimes it can start with just, you know, a, a pain pill that you get hurt um, and you need the pain pill to get through your day. But then that gets way out of balance. Well, that's what I've mentioned, that there's an underlying personality, character, neurotic, whatever term you want to use, which I don't think is relevant as a concept, that there are people who find it so uh, satisfying and so uh, give them such a sense of security that they continue on it. But I really believe, though, again, I have no statistics to prove it, the vast majority of people who prescribe a pain pill like Oxycontin or Oxycodone uh, for pain will get off it when uh, their prescription runs out and never really crave it. So I think that we're seeing, a uh, again, a portion of the population that's susceptible to the use of opioids. So are you saying those that can get off of it without, they don't go through the normal withdrawals that other people do? Oh, they can, no, they go through less, they go through withdrawal, less of a withdrawal, but once they have been withdrawn uh, physically, they do not have the psychological craving for the drug. So when, when you, you've worked with a lot of people and you said in the beginning, some can come off and some can't, is there, how does the role of the support systems that, you know, the family, the job, what role does that support system play in all this? A major role, uh, and this is what a lot of parents don't like to hear, but it does make, play a major role. Uh, somebody came out recently with a very uh, pertinent statement that a family at each dinner together has a lesser chance of the children going on to drugs than a family that doesn't eat dinner together. Uh, the bumper stickers that went around uh, 20 years ago, Hugs Not Drugs, was also very pertinent. Uh, the recognition at a young age that you could rely on a parent to be there when you need them. I've often described or defined a good parent is one that is there when the child needs it and one that leaves the child to explore when the child asks uh, to be able to explore and suffer the anxiety during the child's explorations. I mean, there is a limit to that. Uh, we don't want to have a child explore by jumping off a cliff or lighting a match uh, in the house creates, but within uh, rational limits of a child's exploration. Because the more a child can explore as a young age, the more a child develops confidence in its ability to handle situations without mommy and daddy, but knows that mommy and daddy are there if they run into a situation that they can't handle. I think it's an uh, essential part of growing up for parents to have the wisdom to be there when the child really needs you and to let the child deal with certain things on their own uh, when the child is struggling to get something done. I remember one patient I had uh, quite a few years ago who was into drugs very heavily and recalled during therapy how when he would do something, let's say, try to put a model airplane or model boat together, his father, who was supposedly helping him, 
would say, oh, let me do that, son. I can do it much faster. And what did he teach the child? He taught the child that, oh, you are incompetent to do this. Uh, you are a child that might take you a little longer, but I doubt your competence. So this child was never comfortable uh, in the adult world and the confidence to be able to handle difficult situations. I must say that there's another uh, big cause, and I have a feeling that the uh, the school situation now where so many things are taught online uh, is playing a role, and that is the learning disabled child. Not stupid, very intelligent youngsters who have dysgraphia or dyslexia, uh, some kind of slow learning, uh, learning disability, uh, who when they're in school, have the support of a support staff, uh, such as a special ed teacher, but during this crisis are left to fend on their own. And I do. I did publish a paper not long ago called The Relationship Between Learning Disabilities and Drug Abuse, because once again, a child is thrown into a situation in school where he's not coping with really the first out-of-house a challenge that he has to face and uh, suddenly develops an anxiety. Uh-oh, I can't handle this. What does that make me? Will I be able to handle things in the future? <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, the anxiety that grows out of that is quelled more often than not by the use of drugs. So now we have discovered that, we're aware of it, and the teaching... Uh, in-classroom teachers have an aide or a special ed teacher who will work with that child and help it over the difficulties that it has in class. However, that's not so easy online, uh, Zooming or Facebook or whatever uh, new technology they are using to teach the kids. So they're left to struggle more on their own and have a much greater chance to turn to the drugs, especially the opioids. Uh, well, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to comment. I think you're making, you know, talking about how people learn and how that influences their life. Because the first thing you do, you know, if you don't get it, you're stupid. You're a failure. And I have clients that they had truly struggled since they've been forced to, you know, to do Zoom meetings. And before that, I had a client, a straight A student. And just is barely making bees now. And, you know, mom doesn't understand it. Dad doesn't understand it. You know, what? they're just lazy. And no, they're not, they're, wow. there may be some laziness, but we all learn differently. And how we learn, that impacts our self-esteem and our self-confidence. I mean, what else do you have besides school when you're, when you're young? That and... Uh athletics. And a lot of these kids are just not athletic. Uh, so they're not part of the A group, as we used to call it back in high school days. Uh, but I think that you're absolutely right, that this uh, the, the problem we now face with the uh, not be, the kids not being in a classroom setting uh, really can disturb them. Uh, it's, it's really a uh, side effect of this whole COVID epidemic. Well, and I think too, you know, for a lot of times 
with kids, that's the only time they see their friends. There's the social impact of school. You know, if you're an only child, you go home, it's you, mom and dad. Um, and the only time that you get to be exposed to other kids is when you're at school. And that's that's when you, you learn, you, you see how people behave and you, oh, that was, that was good behavior. That got rewarded. I should do that. So there's so much more than just the academic piece of school and what that what that gives to our kids. And I've worked with families that have literally both mom and dad um, were forced to work from home and all, two kids are going to school from home. You know, the kids go to school in their room. Um, dad works at the dining room table. Mom works in the kitchen when she can or her room. And it's it's just changed the whole dynamics. And they all feel very needy. They feel like they're not getting what they need out of just daily life. I mean, in a couple of minutes, tell give us a, a, a two-minute description of your response to that. Well, I think you're right on the ball there. But I don't think it's limited to the kids. I'm finding that uh, the adults, uh, I hate to say it, but at 83, I'm still working. And I'm still working with patients. Uh, they're in New York. I work over the phone with them. And it seems to be going fine. Uh, but they're finding that their limitations are also quite depressing to them. Uh, and a lot of it is quite frustrating and infuriating for adults. So you have to remember, a lot of these kids not only socialize in school, but get together after school. They part, they get together for parties. And I don't mean partying on drugs, but just parties, uh, play dates, and all the other socialization that's so essential to young kids and adolescents. And I think that you hit the nail on the head when you say that the frustration of not being able to socialize is uh, quite uh, destructive uh, during this pandemic, both for kids and for many adults. Because it's not only the, the kids that are, are, are getting onto the drugs or attempting suicide, we find it among the young adults in their 20s and 30s. Uh, the older adults seem not to turn to suicide or drugs. They just turn to frustration and anger and uh, depression. So there's an awful lot of depression out there right now, along with uh, the use of the drugs. So I think that you're, you've hit the nail on the head when you talk about the socialization problem. Because well, these youngsters... And, and... Are, because these youngsters, as we said earlier, are just not used to deprivation. They're not used to the idea that uh, that they can't have what they want. Uh, they're too young to remember the Rolling Stones line, you can't always get what you want. Uh, that's a, and good, they that's a good line, you know, because they can't, they don't remember that. And they're so, they've been so redirected to social media and, you know, we're going to take a little break, but when we come back, I'd like to talk more about the impact, you know, that social media gives you just what you want when you want it. We'll be back after these messages. Do you ever wonder if you're the only woman who runs errands in her yoga pants so it will look like she went to the gym? 
Or how about the only mom who feeds her kids raw cookie dough? Or are you the only one who cooks her family cold cereal for dinner? Do you need more laughter and less loudness? More self-love and less self-loathing? More joy and less judgment? You're not alone. Come to The Living Room, a place where we get comfy, candid, and confident together. Come seeking sanctuary and leave feeling renewed. We are saving a seat for you. Give yourself some living room today. Snowflake the Duck has been making the news ever since he was adopted by a family in Freeport, Maine. After bringing home the abandoned duckling, he immediately bonded with Kylie, the Brown family's five-year-old daughter. When Snowflake refused to stay in the backyard, Kylie's parents said they had no choice but to give him a diaper and make him a house duck. A lot of kids go to the park to see the ducks, but five-year-old Kylie Brown takes her duck to see the park. Snowflake cadoodles and swims around the pond, and he comes when Kylie calls. You could call it gubble or meaningless conversation, but Kylie and Snowflake seem to understand each other. In the winter, Kylie and Snowflake like to go sledding. What's another word for a sled? A hurly hackett. It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here is your host, Lee Richardson. We're back, and right before we took we went to break, Dr. Moses and I were talking about the impact that the pandemic has had on our just our basic socialization because you can't go to school, you can't go to work. In many cases, you know, your religious community has been shut down. Um so it really has changed our daily life and not in a positive way. Well, I think that uh, you mentioned social media. And ironically, uh, even though so many of these youngsters will text or Zoom or FaceTime or whatever other way they have of communicating with their friends, it's apparently really not enough because they can do that when they can get together and have live contact when they choose to. But it seems as if when they don't have that choice and live contact no longer is available to them, that they really are very badly affected by the lack of the social their social world. And I think that because they have such difficulty in tolerating deprivation, uh, they do become depressed and become uh, very, very vulnerable to the use of drugs, especially the opioids, which uh, also are great depression relievers because nothing matters. I don't know how many people out there in our listening audience have experienced opioids in one way or another, but I remember many years ago when I was a senior medical student and uh, I had to be hospitalized for a uh, very contagious infection. I got a shot of Demerol, <coughs> and during the time that that shot of Demerol was working, I really couldn't care less about anything. Uh, it was just, I was floating about a foot above the bed, 
But then I came down and had to deal with reality. And fortunately, the reality wasn't all that bad at that time. But uh, the depression that occurs from the lack of the ability to do what they want is uh, really handled in one of two ways. I'm going to kill myself, which will teach the world uh, how, you know, that's, look at the way you've treated me. Look what you've made me do, uh, which is a very big component of suicides. Uh, and as I uh, have said many times, this Moses has a different set of commandments. The second one is, thou shalt not mess thyself up when thou art angry at somebody else. Well, these kids do, do exactly that. They are angry at whoever it is that isn't rescuing them from their deprivation, whether it be their parents or fate or God or, or whoever. And then they say, I'll teach you a lesson and uh, for not helping me. I'll show you how bad I feel. And they make a suicide gesture, attempt, or success. Uh, and the same thing is with the opioids. Uh, they will take the opioids. And I really believe that many of the opioid overdoses where the people die are probably uh, conscious or unconscious suicides. Uh, those deaths occur either because a person uh, intends to take more than usual or sometimes uh, it's simply because the heroin they get is much uh, more powerful than what they used to. And what was once their usual dose uh, now is three times what they expect, and it kills them. Those are the accidental deaths. But I really believe that a lot of heroin users know just how much they can take. And when they take more than that, it's because they really want to commit suicide. Well, that makes sense to me. It really does, because when you're in that that hopeless state where you're just looking for some level of relief, that why why not? And I, I mean, I have clients tell me, you know, I have I think about suicide. I don't have plans to do it. I just have the thought that, you know, it, it just might be easier if I weren't here. And those are people that are in pretty healthy situations. And, you know, one of the things that, that I think about the pandemic, how many people lost their jobs and and how many people still haven't been able, been able to return to work? And when you get out of school and you go into your professional life, your older life, your job becomes the center of your of your being. Well, your job and your family, uh, but certainly the job is a very big part of a person's uh, sense of self sense of importance and uh, this is one of the uh, unfortunate parts of what we call the empty nest syndrome where mothers no longer feel useful because they're not uh, following probably the most difficult career in the world called motherhood and uh, a mother who loves the children gets a great deal of gratification from dealing with the daily travails that the children uh, bring up to her but I think that the the people who have careers also suffer from what be what might be comparable to that emptiness syndrome, a sense I'm no longer useful, I no longer have a meaning, and I no longer can support my family the way I would like to, and uh, what's going to become of my family? And the 
a lot of people, ironically enough, absolutely refuse to recognize the reality of downsizing. Of uh, They live in a, uh, what I could talk about Long Island, they live in a uh, house that's taxed at, believe it or not, $75,000 a year. And to downsize to a house where they only are taxed $40,000 a year is unacceptable to them. It's that same thing we're talking about. I am entitled. I don't want to be deprived. Uh, to paraphrase Oscar Wilde, is I can tolerate anything but deprivation. And uh. I, I think that uh, it's a very important uh, concept at all ages, whether you're adult, a teenager, a child, to learn that you can't always get what you want, and you can't always have life the way you want it to be. Or you can only have life the way it is that you work for, and sometimes uh, Mother Nature and the world is more powerful than you are. So a, uh, a, a person gets a job as ambassador to uh, Afghanistan, and suddenly you're surrounded by reality of what the hell am I going to do now? Uh, and it has nothing to do with you or anything else. It just happens to be something that the world throws you right in your face. If you can't deal with those things on a much lesser term than being under the Taliban rule, but only being under the COVID virus rule, which is bad enough, but it's not the Taliban. If you can't deal with the deprivation secondary to COVID virus, then you're going to turn to something, suicide opiates, uh, some other drug, Valium. I, I think that just limiting to the opiates, we're losing sight of all of the prescribed tranquilizers and antidepressants that, that, that are being thrown at the population out there. You know, it's ironic. I'm amazed at how many young younger people and the kids in high school, they get their drugs from their parents' bathroom um, cabinet. Oh, yes. Yes. Valium, Xanax especially. Yep. Those are the two big ones, yep. But you know, uh, I've been practicing psychiatry for over 50 years. And right now, I don't uh, refer anybody to another psychiatrist. Because in my experience, all they do is make a diagnosis, which unfortunately is wrong half the time, and throw medicine their way. And I think that this is no better than being a drug dealer, a licensed drug dealer. Uh, you're dealing, it's like a doctor giving somebody with appendicitis a shot of morphine. They see the pain went away. You're all better. So I think that the psychiatric profession and the people who are aligned with this uh, constant prescription of uh, antidepressants or uh, tranquilizers, not that I don't use them when they're absolutely necessary, but they're being thrown out there and they're not absolutely necessary. And uh, psychotherapy or talk therapy uh, gets to the core and the root of things uh, rather than just dealing with the symptom. So I think that there's a whole social network, both legal and illegal, that, uh, that advocates the use of medication, legal or illegal, to deal with emotional problems. And I think that that social 
uh, situation plays a role in why so many people will turn to illegal drugs. Oh, it makes me feel better. It's got to be okay. No, that's not true. Well, and where did you get it to start with? You know, you got it from a doctor. And, well, doctors know everything. If the doctor said, I need to take it, then I need to take it. And that's, you know, what I have seen in my practice is the side effects. You know, I'll be seeing, I, I work with a lot of people with depression and anxiety, and, and they'll be put on a medication, and it'll, it'll work for a little while, but then they'll start having a side effect, so they'll go back to their doctor, and that's okay. I got something for that side effect. I can take care of that. So they'll, they'll, they keep layering medication on, um, on top of one and another. And then it, it, when it falls apart, the person really doesn't know what to do. All they were doing was trusting and doing what they were told to do. Oh, you're absolutely right. And uh, I think that this is a major social problem, major, a major problem of all of society and uh, people not wanting to think for themselves and to think that you're right. If this doctor told me that that's okay, it's okay. And uh, Valium and Xanax are both addictive drugs, just as is uh, the, are the opiates. And I think that, well, we forget that. And to limit our talk to the opiates is forgetting all of the other medications that work, but they don't work as well as heroin or oxycodone or oxycontin. They all uh, stop short of that. Uh, another thing that doctors don't seem to realize is that a depression that's caused by a reality factor, like the loss of a job or the loss of death of a child, uh, is not going to be helped by an antidepressant. That they don't work when the reality is involved. They only work when there's some kind of undergoing underlying conflict that's creating that depression. Like, I can't always get what I want, so I'm depressed. Well, that would probably be effectively treated by an antidepressant, but it doesn't answer the problem. It just, well, uh, it just gives them a palliative uh, to deal with the symptom without ever getting to the cause. You know, you mentioned early on in the conversation that, you know, fraud with somebody uh, that you studied. And, and I think the role that the subconscious plays in our decision-making process is huge. And I think that people, and this is a true fact, every second the brain is capable of taking in 11 million bits of data. Research says that somewhere between 40 and 126 goes to your conscious level. Well, we don't have to do the math. Where does it all go? It goes to your subconscious, you know? And, and I think that's what drives us on so many levels. It does. The unconscious or subconscious really is a tremendous driving force. But you're in Texas, so you won't take offense at this. But everybody can take in 11 million bits of information, except politicians. They don't seem to be able to take in any bits of information. <sighs> No, you're right. They've got all the information that their little brain can hold, and they're not willing to change it out. That is for sure. But, not a bit. But I think but, that uh, it's, it's, they don't need opiates because they have the power to make things happen uh, that they want to happen. 
And if you have that power, uh, either on a, let's say, political basis, which can, can be uh, a bit dangerous, but on an individual basis, that's where it's really important. If you have the power to change what's bothering you, you don't need opiates. You don't need suicide. Uh, you have that sense of confidence that I can make this happen. I can deal with this. Uh, when my younger son was eight years old, he played on a soccer team that was coached by a man whose youth, his youth was spent in Germany during World War II. His father was killed, of course, fighting for the Germans, but he had his house bombed out from over him, his apartment building, on three separate occasions. And he turned out all right. He was a great guy and a great coach. And uh, he had the fortitude to deal with these traumas, which I think are a little greater than having to deal with COVID. But he, as he grew, he realized he had the power to make things happen, moved to the United States, became successful in his job, in his business, which was a house painter, but a very good one and uh, very highly respected. And he didn't show any of the symptoms that one might expect from that traumatic childhood. But there's a man who felt that sense of confidence and power to make his life what he wants it to be. But when you get a bunch of people who feel that they have to succumb, cannot adapt, will not adapt to the realities of the COVID epidemic, then they have to deal with the, the uh, underlying frustration, anger, depression that they really can't deal with because they don't feel either the confidence or, or the power to get through this temporary time. And so they look for some kind of relief. And I think either it's relief by uh, using a tranquilizer, the opiates, or relief by threatening people and, put, and expressing their anger through, I'm going to kill myself. See what you've made me do. Why didn't you rescue me from this terrible thing? Uh, why aren't you that knight in shining armor who rides in on his white steed and rescues and grabs up my fair maiden or, or man or child or boy and rescues me from this terrible disease? And uh, this will teach you a lesson. I will, I will kill myself because I can't handle it anymore. So... We have here a whole spectrum that really transcends just the opiates, which is what we were talking about. And I think our audience has to be aware that of all the things we're talking about, the ones that bring about greatest relief are the opiates. They bring about a sense of absolute tranquility. Nothing matters. Uh, I don't have to worry about anything. I'm on the nod. Uh, and if you remember, the parents out there, Remember their little children, their infants, when they were fed, when they were really fussy and crying and kicking, wanting to be fed, not wanting to wait till the bottle warms uh, up, but wants it immediately. And the minute it's fed, it goes on the nod. It's quite comfortable, quite happy. You have a good indication of what a heroin or an opiate user feels once he gets his drug. So does that, you know, I know with some drugs, people build up uh, an immunity they, and they have to start doing more and more and more. Is that how it works with opioids? That's the definition of addiction right there. Yeah. 
uh, because many people are on an addictive drug, uh, which they take regularly every day. They never need a higher dose. Uh, they never are not, are not affected by the dose they have. And there's no sense of addiction. That addiction is exactly what you said, Lee, is that addiction, you get uh, adapted to that drug and you begin to need more and more and more. So the, one of the last people I've treated on opioids um, was a young man who had worked himself up to 30 Oxycontin a day. Now, that would kill you or me. But he became adapted to it because he gradually built up um, to that dose. But uh, getting him down from 30 to uh, nothing took several years. So, I mean, it is it is a very, very long and difficult process. And this young man was a tremendous victim of, of being learning disabled. Couldn't handle school, but he sure could handle had the brains to handle crises, and he could deal with crises quite well, quite smart, when it was outside of the academic world. And we often make that mistake in raising our youngsters. And I have a pet peeve about our, quote, education system. You know, you and I have been lied to when we were kids. You know, every kid out there has been lied to. We tell them, if you're not good in five subjects, you're not going to be successful. If you're not good in five subjects, uh, you're not going to get into a good college. If you're not good in five subjects in college, you're not going to get into a good graduate school. Well, my linguist, my ability to learn language stinks. Uh, I cannot learn. I failed French in college on several occasions. Uh, and not one of my patients suffered from it because I couldn't speak French. And not one of my patients suffer if I couldn't do calculus. Or if I didn't, well, yes, they would suffer if I didn't know history. But I think that telling our children you're going to be a failure if you're not good in five subjects is a, is a lie. And it's a very destructive and dangerous lie. I think children have got to be taught that you have to be really good in one thing. And if you're really good in one thing, then you could be successful in life. I, I would make that. a terrible terrible Pardon? I agree with that. Yeah. I would make a terrible surgeon. My hands just do not have great uh, manipulative or math, uh, ability. I am not good with my hands. But I make a fairly good psychiatrist and a fairly good diagnostician. And uh, that's made me successful in my chosen field. But to tell me that because I failed French, I wouldn't get into medical school and I couldn't become a psychiatrist. That's rather moronic when you get right down to it. Well, you know, in the demands that we're placing now on students in school, you know, my niece told me that she is going to graduate from high school with an associate's degree. And I said, that's amazing. How are you going to do that? Well, there are programs out if you go and if, you know, if you take all the advanced classes and blah, 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 blah. And I'm thinking, what, that's, so is that the expectation now that you're going to graduate from high school with associate's degree in college? That's a tremendous amount of stress for a, for a, you know how the 16-year-old the brain is. All The only thing that's in charge is the amygdala. 
That's just the emotions flowing out. Um, well, I can challenge that. I was a freshman in college at 16. Well, you're a very unique gentleman. I know, uh, uh, especially for being 16. And the only 16-year-old Bates College who was rather uh, a depressing experience in many ways. But, you know, we do confuse uh, academics and intelligence. There are an awful lot of people who can parrot back to their teachers exactly what the teacher wants to hear. As my uh, history teacher in college said, the definition of a lecture is when it goes from my notes to your notes without passing through either head. And uh, I think an awful lot of academic uh, youngsters merely are parrots. But then you have youngsters who do not do that well academically, but who are absolutely intelligent when it comes to dealing with the world and with life. That is more of a true intelligence than getting straight A's. Boy, do I do I agree with that. And I think, you know, it's interesting because I had twin boys. Different as night and day, but w- they both were so incredibly smart, but so differently. One was very book smart, could pick up, you know, when it's three years old, he can pick up a, a first grade book and read it. And the other was so intuitive and he observed and he, what he learned through life was just as important in some ways more important than what his twin brother did. Um, it's, and I, so I've always looked at things differently and I was a twin. I had a twin brother too. And, you know, I've always looked at things differently. Um, we've, we've got a couple of minutes left. You know, I'd like to give our, our listeners, what is the takeaway on the cause and effect of opioids? I mean, how can they, how can they help somebody, um, that might benefit from their help? Uh, it, A, the person has to want to get help. You know, it's the old joke. How many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? It only takes one. But the light bulb really has to want to change and have the courage to do it. Uh, that most, many people who are on drugs don't want to change. So sometimes you're batting your head against the wall. But the ones that you could really help are your own children by being there for them, giving them a sense of security that mommy and daddy not only love them, but trust them uh, to explore, to be there when the child really needs you, uh, and to start at a young age. Uh, people, the if you can encourage an adult to get into NA or one of the uh, detox programs, if you can get them to realize that most of them really hate authority and they've taken, they've turned their authority figure over to the heroin or the opioids, which now makes demands on them that often they don't want to meet. Uh, they, then you could, might be able to get them to be uh, willing to enter some kind of drug detox program and get you know, some that is That's a great point. And it, that's a great point to lead people with is that, you know, think think per ahead and you can't change people's mind, but you can provide the support to help them. Dr. Moses, thank you so much for being with me today. My pleasure. Lee. On 
behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio,